Hey, Andy Jenkins here, and I, I think I'm actually this time going to get this thing cranked back up. I was doing this podcast for, goodness, it was about maybe a year ago, something like that. Paused. I, I'm, I'm going to explain that over the next few weeks, and then got started back, and then paused, and then it's just one of those things where you, you kind of keep your eye on the prize, or you keep your eye on the ball, and the reality is so many times in life there are things that we want to do, and they might just be a matter of timing where it's definitely a yes, but it's it's maybe, I phrase it like this in the men's advance, it's a no for now, not for later. It's definitely a yes, but it's a postponement of the yes until a future time and place when the yes can be more fully, I guess, experienced or realized or done in a better way. Anyway, in this episode, I'm going to kind of pull together some of the things that I've put out there over the past few weeks and try to kind of maybe pull these together and help these push forward to what I want to lay out over the next few weeks. Here's what I want to talk about. I want to actually talk about for the next series of maybe five, six weeks, this topic that I've been wrestling with and diving into and learning about and exploring because I've been learning about myself and growing and then have had the opportunity to teach others in this area. It's, It's the idea of claiming your freedom in the realm of emotional health. Now, not going to get into it in this episode, but this is an area that honestly I used to really kind of downplay or overlook, but it was really in the last two years I I really started seeing the importance of it, maybe the last three years, because as I'll unfold the story, in 2016, man, that's that's three years ago, and, and that was one of those years where it seems like Maybe this will ring true for some of you. You think you get pummeled and you think you've hit rock bottom and then you're totally shocked because you can go even farther down. And so people say that phrase, well, if you hit rock bottom, at least there's nowhere to go but up. Maybe not true. Maybe maybe there's another bottom that you didn't even know about. And so 2016 was kind of the first of the bottoms. And then it was just Oh, we can go farther. Oh, we. But but through that whole process, I started studying this idea of emotional health. That led me to this. Last fall, I did something that I never really imagined I would ever do. I took a psychological evaluation. Now, it was a full one. It was the kind that had hundreds of questions. They're followed by a sit-down interview after you take the questions, or you meet with a licensed psychologist face-to-face, and they interview you. In, in other words, like I voluntarily took one of those tests that cost several hundred dollars. And here's the bigger thing. It's not just the money, it's the reality that that test can label you for the rest of your life. Okay, and I actually asked, again, voluntarily to take it. Here's why. Uh, I was in the middle of my 40s, still am, and I I think I'd effectively averted the typical midlife crisis by living those tough few years. Now, most of you who kind of follow us in social media world, and this is because we put the greatest hits version out there, everybody does, knew nothing of the trauma and trials that I was enduring, but the pain was was still there. And the causes of the pain were there. Every few months, I would speak about the pieces of my story from a stage somewhere at an event where I was speaking. So I kind of offered a glimpse into that. I did so via the podcast or some other venue where I would teach. But in in my mind, looking back in the rearview mirror of life now, you know, hindsight, it's kind of kind of 2020. You still kind of see through your own lens. But I, I really look back. I realized I'd endured enough to just knock somebody off their feet. And here's the bigger issue. 
knock them off their feet and into the grave. And by that, I mean it, the grave. I haven't really talked about it, but at one point several years ago, I actually contemplated suicide. Now, I knew that life insurance policies like mine, the one I have, they carried these exclusion causes which automatically negated the payout in cases of suicide. So I actually had planned, and I'm not going to go into it, and I don't want to glamorize it because it wasn't glamorous at all. I had planned the ordeal in my mind down to enough detail to make it emphatically not look like suicide at all. And then I got better. And then here, here's the deal. As often happens once you taste a bit of victory, the bottom of life fell out again like that proverbial plank dangling over the edge of a pirate ship. It turns out, here's what I'd done. I'd learned to manage fruits without addressing the roots in my life. Now, that fruit root issue, it may sound like I'm speaking Japanese, Chinese, just speaking a totally different language. Here's what I'll do. If you can kind of table that, I'll come back to it maybe in a couple more episodes, a couple weeks from now. Now, uh, when I took the test, the evaluation, I was at that point regularly visiting a counselor. Uh, in fact, those kind of tests are such a serious ordeal that you actually have to have an evaluation after being referred by a professional. So the PhD I was seeing, he did the honors, he referred me. That counselor happened to be the second professional that I had scheduled regular meetings with in the past 18 months. I had jumped out of the first, abandoned him after learning that although, here's, this is crazy, although he presented himself as a licensed therapist, he had absolutely no credentials at all. That's right zero. The first guy, he was tough and kind and tender, all all kind of in one. He regularly overstepped professional ethical guidelines. He provided legal advice and offered false wisdom, which clearly landed beyond his skill set. The irony was I was referred to him by a friend of his who was, who still is, I believe, here in Birmingham, a licensed counselor. To my knowledge, she also assumed that he was credentialed. Now, again, kind-hearted, well-intentioned, a straight talker, so he could he could be tough on you, which is sometimes what you need in counseling. He actually proved, and, and I'll label this very specifically, disastrous. So after talking to him, I found the second guy. His name's Michael, someone whom I verified possessed the right credentials. He had enough history to help me move forward. And after a few sessions of meeting with him, he assured me. He said, hey, there's nothing wrong with you psychologically. You've just, in your life, made a series of poor decisions. Some of them were understandable, not excusable, but understandable in light of the circumstances that you faced. Now, I remember when he was saying that, I mentally retraced the past few years. I cataloged each significant event. Really, while I'm sitting there in his office, it seemed like forever, but it had to be just a few microseconds. I told him, but I need to know if something is wrong with me. I need to see for myself. Then I, I told him, I said, if, if there isn't, okay, if there is, I'm going to address it and get help. I'm not looking for a diagnosis, but I'm not trying to avoid one either. I just want to walk intentionally in wholeness. Okay, let's do it, he said. And with my insistence, Michael referred me to Jeff, a licensed doc with a long list of professional credentials, numerous referrals, his own history of helping people navigate through the tough terrain of mental and emotional health. I returned from speaking at Advance 10.0 in Minnesota on a Monday afternoon, September 2018. That night I rushed my boys to scouts to earn a citizenship in the community merit badge that evening and then I arrived at Jeff's clinic south of Birmingham the following morning at 7 a.m. for the evaluation. I took it and then I waited. A few weeks 
Okay, so get that weeks later I received a phone call. Can you come in later this week? It was Jeff, the doctor. I assumed he was calling to discuss the details of my evaluation with me, but he wasn't. <laughs> now, he was wanting me to, again, come in for more information. I contemplated not going for a moment. The first time I visited him for the eval, I went to the office where I was working with the nonprofit to create some tools on, now, now get this, emotional and mental health. That morning in the office, the day after Advanced 10.0, a runner served me with legal papers. I was being sued by someone who promised me just a few weeks earlier that they, now quote, they weren't my enemy and quote, could always be trusted. And I was thinking, what a whirlwind of a few days. After a few moments, I came back to the present moment and I asked Jeff point blank, do you have a diagnosis for me? No, I don't, he said. I don't have anything yet. I need more info from you. Your case is a bit complex, so I would like to interview you a second time. A second time? <laughs> Most people simply took the test and then met with the PhD or PsyD afterwards, not me. My story was so technical, it necessitated a second discussion. Was I messed up? And was I that messed up? That's what I was thinking. I decided, though, it didn't matter if I was or wasn't. If the goal was to walk in total health, you turn and face whatever stands in your way, and you move through it. Yes, sir, I'll be glad to come back, I replied. And then, if something's wrong with me, I want to know what it is so I can address it and make it right. I'll meet with you as many times as I need. In that moment, I remember telling myself, yes, great, I'm moving forward in the right direction. I'm going to get this figured out, finally. Then simultaneously, I thought, geez, I, I require more time and attention than most people. He's found something. Well, turns out he hadn't. Well, I mean, technically that's not true. He didn't offer a formal diagnosis, but he did find something. After another 90 minutes in his office, Jeff told me, you're not out of range, so I'm not comfortable diagnosing you. That said, you do have some things that caught my attention. Now, what do you mean by out of range, I asked. Well, people assume that psychological disorders are either a yes or no proposition, that you're either a narcissist or you're not that you're either a hypochondriac or you're not, that you're either an introvert or an extrovert, that you either have post-traumatic stress or you don't, that you're either, so people see it as black and white opposites. That's kind of how I do. Yes, but it's not like that at all, he said. He began drawing this imaginary scale sideways in the air with his hands. Think of it like this. Now, I'm gonna put this picture in the show notes to where you can see it. On one side of the scale, he explained to me that you have a totally healthy person, and on the other end, you have a completely unhealthy person, as far as that one single issue goes. Now, the MMPI, that's the standardized test that I took, it measures for numerous psychological disorders, meaning that you might be healthy in one area, but unhealthy in another. Okay, that is, this evaluation instrument, it isolates different issues. And the test is clever enough to tell whether or not you're lying or even self-protecting from the administrator of the test when you take it. It's brilliant, right? Now Jeff continued, most people don't fall on one extreme or the other. I mean, they don't fall off the one side where they're completely unaffected by something. In fact, that would actually be unhealthy. For instance, the extreme opposite of narcissism wouldn't be healthy either. It would mean the person probably lacks self-worth and healthy sense of their identity. 
Now, as I nodded in agreement, beginning to understand what he was saying, he continued, but most people don't fall in the range where I or any other professional would diagnose them. There are a lot of people on social media using terms like, now get this, narcissism and gaslighting and abuse who really have no idea what those words mean. In fact, many of the people who use those words the most, they're the biggest culprits. Now, I don't like those terms when people use them, I confess. They use them like grenades and generally launch them at someone that they've had a disagreement with. Well, that's only part of the problem, he said. Another part of it is that most of the people who use the words completely misdefine them. They use them like hot words without any true definition. Or even worse, they supply their own definition. Problem is, no one gets to rewrite their own dictionary. And he continued, Another issue is that because they misdefine the words, and because they most often, you might even say always, use them in a negative sense, it keeps people who truly struggle with the issues from actually seeking help. That all makes sense, I told him. People get understandably nervous when they think they might have a physical issue to deal with, but we don't attack them or assume any kind of inherent character flaw exists. With mental and emotional things, we almost always automatically do. Well, that's the other part of it, Jeff continued. Misdefinition of it all makes people afraid of exploring an area in which most of us could actually benefit from a little help. So how does it relate to me personally, I ask? Well, that's a good question. Your test came back and it revealed a few things, like, well, first of all, you were a bit defensive. How so? I, I just answered a few questions with a pencil and a paper before we even got to the interview. I know, um, the test showed that though. There are questions built in that screen that. You've been through a lot in the past few years, so this all makes sense. It shows me that you're carrying some tension, some nervousness in general. And I thought for a moment, once again replaying various scenarios like the highlight reel of a horror flick for a few moments. I'd been a stress ball for quite some time, always bracing for when I was going to get emotionally punched again. Then I asked him, what else? Well, you're not diagnosable for anything, but I can tell you the things you probably struggle with. Then, for the next 15 to 20 minutes, I listened to Jeff graciously outline for me some of the deepest struggles I had. Some of the same issues that people closest to me would understand once explained. Yet, I'd never heard someone detail them with such accuracy, with such honor, and with such tenderness. At some point, you had to crash, he said. There's no way you could keep carrying this weight. And now that you're here, though, at the bottom, we can rebuild. And we can rebuild in the right way. Now, Jeff told me that many people never seek help precisely because their cases aren't extreme enough to warrant a formal diagnosis. Yet, at the same time, they've been affected and wounded. Now, I thought about it. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor. Nothing of the sort. In my mind, it all made sense, though. If, if you're looking at, it, say, a scale of 1 to 10, and you need an 8 to receive a diagnosis, what do you do if you're just a 7? Or, or what if you're a five and you're only halfway there? A halfway broken bone is considered a fracture. A halfway knocked out boxer often has a concussion. A halfway working lung, kidney, or physical heart is, well, you might not even survive those halves. So why don't we apply the same criteria to emotional or mental hurts as we do to physical ones? It means you go undiagnosed and if you don't pay attention, you live with an undiagnosable struggle. 
Now, for years, probably a decade or more at the time, my wife told me I needed to share my story with others. There's power in it and healing, she encouraged. Your words will set people free. She felt certain that owning my story would set me free too. The problem was, well, I didn't want to confront it. I didn't want to admit what was there buried beneath all the pages. You see, in order to share your story with others, you have to admit that it is, in fact, your story. Parts of mine were hurtful, painful, and self-incriminating. Parts of mine were embarrassing. They were at the time, anyway. I was afraid that in sharing it, I would suddenly find myself not accepted, but rejected. And as you might imagine from a guy who reveals that he's defensive on a psych eval, relationships have been a fragile thing for me. I didn't want to deal with the distance with which people often inflict punishment when you disappoint them. So rather than dealing with the truth and moving into the light, I was content to live in the shadows. As such, I got cozy there. I made my home there in the dark for decades. The trouble is, there's no freedom in the places we hide, just a lot of fear. And whereas we think that walking into the light causes fear and that living in the hidden places provides safety, the exact opposite proves true. Now, 1 John 1, 7 through 9, it's a passage that's come to mean a great deal to me. Here's, here's the New International Version. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the promise in Scripture right there tells us that when we walk in the light, meaning out in the open, two things happen. Number one, cleansing. Number two, community. Now, let me talk briefly about each because this is profoundly true whether you ascribe to the teachings of the Bible or not. This stuff simply works. Number one, cleansing. Now, remarkably, 1 John is written to Christians. It's written to people who were already forgiven of their sins. So that might cause us to think that cleansing is done because God sees us as clean. Apparently, though, John's tribe needed an ongoing experience, not just an intellectual belief, but an experience of the Lord's work in them. The truth needed to move from information they held in their head to revelation they had experienced in their heart. Something held them back from the freedom they were redeemed to experience. They needed an encounter which would allow them to feel in their heart the truth that they intellectually knew in their head. So that's number one, cleansing. Number two is community. When we wear masks or live in the hidden places, we don't really know if people love us for who we are or if they love us for the false self we projected. It's only when we walk into the open that we truly know each other. And it's only then, it's only there, that we experience the true gift of acceptance, of real, raw, relational connection. John promised his friends that if they would walk into the light, the right people would embrace them fully. They would no longer feel alone. They would experience the community that we so all desperately craved. Now, for years, I shared only, only the parts of my story I wanted others to see, the good parts, the places where I, quote, had it all together. You may have seen those pieces on my story and applauded or liked it or hearted it on social media or laughed it or cheered it. The fact now get this, that I simultaneously struggled, it doesn't make those great parts less true for me any more than it makes the notion that your struggles make your highlights unreal either. We're far more complex than we realize. 
in my life, the broken places they occasionally surface. After all, bad trees, or at least trees with chronic dis-ease, those trees bear bad fruits, right? The same symptoms continued resurrecting in my life. Now, here, here's a list. Th things like, here's some of the things I struggled with. Anger, lying, financial dishonesty, a roller coaster marriage marked by as many lows as highs, fractured friendships, trust issues, difficulty letting people in close, uh, pride and posturing, that, that is spinning to make reality seem better than it is, foreclosures, as in I had three, bankruptcy, depression. It's hard to feel on top of the world when you live in the shadows and to have so much clutter in there with you. So that all seems to make sense. Now, whenever any of these things surface, I quickly put out the fire. I rationalized how the current circumstances created a no-win situation for me, and then I quickly hid the debris. So most people, probably even you, never knew any of this. Always moved on with life, each time hitting a pause button on the chaos before watching an even bigger issue surface within the next few years. And the more I prolonged dealing with the root issues and focused only the fruits, the deeper the roots grew. They became stronger and they made their presence known. Now those issues, they always resurface at the most inopportune times too. Crisis, I learned, is never convenient. In fact, <laughs> trials often come during what seemed to already be the most challenging times. Over time, I developed the idea that maybe one day I'd have plenty of time to share my story and that when I did, get this, I would probably write it while in prison or share it with others while at rehab from someplace like the local mission two miles from my house. It was a place where guys learn about Jesus all day. They spend their nights and Saturdays working at the nonprofit's thrift store and then they get to visit their families for a few hours every other Sunday. I know, that sounds weird. It actually looks weirder to type it on my notes or write it in my journal or to actually say it into a microphone. Now anyway, for years, I wonder what would, what would actually happen. What if I just shared my story? Now I was afraid that if I did, others would shun me. I was afraid that my wife would disown me. I was convinced that in the end, it would just be me and my story standing all alone. Now, the truth is that the accuser always accuses, always has, always will. Long after the payment for sin has been made, he continues accusing. Until his dying day, he'll continue escalating the chatter, or at least he'll try to. Now, Jesus himself knew this. As he approached Holy Week, he told his disciples, Satan has nothing on me. That's in John 14, 30. There was no secret thing the accuser could pull from the closet of Christendom and toss into the middle of Jesus' story. There's no scandal, no hidden skeleton, no untold event. Our lives aren't quite that pristine. Dig long enough and you can find something on anyone, right? In my case, you wouldn't need to dig too deep or push too hard. What's the path forward? Ironically, freedom isn't found in burying the clutter deeper. That just takes the roots deeper and it makes them stronger. No, freedom is found in bringing everything to the surface right there where everyone can see it. Sounds scary, doesn't it? Again, let me repeat it. Freedom isn't found in hoping that no one finds out. Freedom is found when there's nothing more to hide, when the skeletons in the closet no longer have a stranglehold on you. That's a topic. I'm going to come back to that in a couple weeks. Now, of all things, here's what's odd. I'm... 
I'm praying about all of this, and I really believe the Holy Spirit showed me something about this while watching an unholy movie. And he highlighted the solution. Here's what happened. One weekend, I skimmed my Netflix suggestions, and I zoned in on 8 Mile. Now, that's a film in which rapper Eminem plays Jimmy Smith Jr., a young man who desperately wants to leave the boundaries of Detroit and move toward his own dreams and his own destiny. Jimmy finds himself competing in a rap contest. It's the kind which pits two artists against each other, but the rules in this contest are somewhat strange. The rapper who insults the other the most wins. So with the beat blaring behind them, artists accuse one another of their public flaws and hidden failures. It's, this is basically like Deviledom 101. During the final showdown, Jimmy flips the script though. Rather than insulting his opponent, he focuses only on revealing all of his own faults. He raps about his poverty, about the fact that he's a different race, the truth that his girlfriend cheated on him, and the fact that he got jumped and robbed a few days before the contest. In doing so, he effectively disarms the enemy, plundering him of his complete arsenal of ammunition. When Jimmy finishes, there's nothing else that can be said. He concludes his routine, taunting his foe. Now, tell them something they don't know about me. Eminem tosses on the mic. His only ammunition now stripped from him, the opponent grows more embarrassed by the moment. The opponent, Clarence, sheepishly hands over the mic. There's nothing more to say. There's nothing left to accuse. Eminem plundered the enemy of his power by saying everything that could be said about himself on his own. To quote Jesus, this accuser has nothing on me. Now, you can get to that place by living a perfect life that leaves nothing to accuse, like Jesus, or you can get there by unloading it all before the accuser can. Most of us have a trail of debris in our past, leaving us with option number two. Jesus told Nicodemus, a Pharisee who searched him out one night to speak to him about new life, that people who want freedom walk into the light so that their deeds might be exposed. That's in John 3:21. Those people don't hide. And John told us, the verse we looked at earlier, we just looked at it, that cleansing a community, that they occur in the light. So let's clarify what it means to walk into the light because most of us don't need to stand on stage and wrap out the highlight reel of our flaws, bearing our souls for the masses. That's not the means that I suggest that you use to find wholeness. Now, I define walking in the light as this. It's allowing the light, the truth, to penetrate every dark corner and crevice of your soul so that you might see what's there, deal with it, and find freedom. That's it. Let me repeat it. I define walking in the light as this, allowing the light to penetrate every dark corner and crevice of your soul so that you might see what's there, deal with it, and find freedom. Walking in the light isn't so much a public display of your junk as it is a private penetration of the secret places. Now, oddly enough, our hyper-sharing, place it all on social media for everyone to see, that can actually mitigate against walking in the light. You can drop a note on social media and overshare parts of your life, effectively not sharing them at all. How so? Well, when you drop a post for a few thousand strangers to see, you offload the info, but you don't necessarily do anything with it. You just set it out there. You feel like you've done the tough work. The hearts and thumbs seem to confirm that you have, but you haven't. Most of the people who like and hard and even comment and add a boy or add a girl know nothing of your story. They're just being kind. 
So transparency, it doesn't mean disclose everything to everyone. It means you disclose everything to the people closest to you so that there are no secrets in those open spaces. And in his book, Culture of Honor, Danny Silk communicates this truth with an incredibly easy to understand analogy. In fact, I'll put the link to that book in the show notes. Now, in that book, he writes something like this. If you're painting your house and you create a spill in the kitchen, you don't clean up the bedroom, you clean the kitchen, the room in which you made the spill. He adds, you might alert people who walk into the kitchen that you just mop the floor, that they need to be careful, that they don't slip and fall. Then you, you wouldn't necessarily hang a slippery when wet sign, though, in the garage or grab a megaphone and shout down the street about your accident to all of your neighbors. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? The people who get to know are the people who need to know. And maybe a few others, but that's about it. Think of it, let me outline it like this. A few people get everything, some people get most things, many people get some things, most people get nothing. Let's go through all four. Number one, a few people get everything. They get to know every secret, hidden fault, flaw, and hurt. A few people. Nothing is withheld from them. This includes your spouse or significant other, your closest friends, and perhaps a few family members. This is an extremely small group of people. Uh, for the men who attend Advance, this is your bus. They will graciously highlight your blind spots, encourage you, and empower you to live as the best version of you. A few people get everything. Number two, some people get most things. That is, there are people who aren't in your inner circle who still receive access to significant parts of your story. For instance, I generally feel close business partners in on some of my recent clutter simply so they know where I've been. It gives them a grid whereby they can understand my current mindset and some of the decisions that I make now. Again, number two, some people get most things. Some people. Group number three, many people get some things. Over time, you might share parts of your life with others, with people in small groups, recovery centers, or even from a stage or social media. Again, group number three, many people get some things. Number four, most people get nothing. The reality is that although the situations you face are extremely important to you, they barely phase anyone else at all. They're busy clearing or festering about their own debris. Now, here's what it means. Lean hard on the first group, the small nucleus. And when their time comes to deal with their own hard things, and it will, hold them even harder and closer than they hold you. Now, the tendency in our culture is to hide and then to overshare. We tend to overshare with the masses while hiding our hearts at a distance from those who remain closest to us. In a way, we confess and get things off our chest, but the relationships are never healed. We end up, get this, hiding behind a mask of false vulnerability. It's easy to do, especially when we get likes, shares, and comments from strangers about what we've walked through. Now I know, there's some degree of irony in giving you that advice while I'm telling you parts of my story in a public venue like a podcast. I mean, I mean, geez, I just put the stuff in print in the book, Claim Your Freedom, link in the show notes, put it on audio, podcast, been talking about it on video. It's different here, though, because like, really, I feel part of my job, even part of my calling is to communicate and show others how to navigate their own terrain so that they can do so on their own terms when they're ready. And it's easier for me to do that if I can communicate something to the effect of, hey, look, here's 
what I've been doing. Here's what I've been through. Here's how I handled it. Does that make sense? Mm. Somewhere, another point, somewhere I read this. You're in control of you. I've read it several times, in fact. And though it sounds true, let me just say this. It's a bit naive. Here's reality. There are massive chunks of my story over which I have complete control. And at the same time, like you, I live in real time and space where other people's decisions radically affect my future, the well-being of my family, and even my financial outlook. Sounds scary, doesn't it? I can choose to live as a victim of the circumstances I must endure, or I can choose to live above them, to live free, even as I walk through them. The truth is sometimes we're given a script we don't want to play. We find ourselves in a scene in which we adamantly don't want to be. We can still emerge stronger though, and we will. Here's the deal. In the next few weeks, we're going to discuss how. All right. I'm going to sign off right there. Here's my prayer for you the same way that I sign off every single podcast. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord be gracious to you and may he shine his face of favor on you. And may you see into the deep parts of your own story. May you not fear them, but may you have the courage to let the light shine. Knowing that the light just, it pushes away the darkness and with the light comes the first glimpse of freedom, of healing, of cleansing, grace, peace, and until next time, shalom.